Welcome to another Necromancers of the Northwest podcast. We're going to get things started off right now with a product review. This week I got my hands on Tabletop Adventures Presents Bits of the Boulevard, a PDF which aims to lend GMs a much-needed hand when they're crunched for time, but need to conduct an adventure within the city. Immediately following the credits page, which lists no less than 15 different writers, we get the introduction which starts out by telling us that GMing a city can be a lot of work, which it is, and that the point of this product will be to make it easier for us to do just that. They also explained that including 15 different writers allowed them to accommodate a large variety of settings, and they further mentioned that they have taken great care to assure that the material they chose to include would fit almost every setting, and while the material assumes a quasi-medieval Europe sort of fantasy setting that we're all very familiar with, after looking through the book, I don't find anything in there that it would take more than just a little bit of effort to adapt to whatever kind of non-European fantasy setting you would want, you know, Asia, or even for some sort of uh, science fiction or, or far-off non-fantasy settings. Um, so the intro also contains uh, the industry standard addendum that if you don't like something in the book, you should feel free to modify it. Uh, as though we couldn't have come to that conclusion ourselves. Uh, in the next section of the introduction, they introduce us to the concept of the Harry GM and tell us a little bit about why they made the product. Speaking from experience, when you're trying to balance full-time work or school with family obligations, extracurricular activities like sports or starting a small game design firm, there just isn't a lot of time to do GM work. The book was created to help busy people be effective GMs by providing them with a wide variety of flavorful scenes and useful creative information which can be quickly expanded upon, or in many cases simply inserted into, any game one might be running in an urban setting. Since this information is of a creative nature and doesn't include any mechanical information, the product isn't system specific and could be useful for a wide variety of GMs. They do mention that if you do need mechanical information and you're using a D20 system, that you should use a book called Everyone Else by EN Publishing. I thought it was a little weird that they went ahead and produced a, uh, as their example book, something by somebody else. But uh, they're probably affiliated somewhere further up the line and we're just not privy to it. Um, so following the introduction, uh, we get right into the book, which opens up with 100 of what they're calling bits of the boulevard. Um, these bits are small pieces of flavorful information which could easily be inserted into any setting without much work on the part of the GM. The bits are conveniently numbered to allow for rolling a die percent to determine which bits to include in a, next in a random fashion, and each bit consists of a few evocative sentences which could either be read as is uh, for prose or altered to suit your needs before you read them. And a few of them have additional notes which might range from anything from explanations as to why a bit might include something like coffee, even though it wasn't available in medieval Europe, um, and just those sorts of things GMs might actually need to know if they wanted to use the bit, like what a merchant's name is or the in the town crier sending to him what that might be called, things that wouldn't come up in the uh, in the actual scene but would come up when the PCs were like, okay, well, what's the inn called and where is that? Uh, in general, I found these uh, so-called bits to be well-written and useful, both to be used on the fly uh, and to add a little bit of excitement to any city scene, or if you have the time to be expanded upon to create either a full encounter or, or even to serve as a launching point for a whole adventure. Though admittedly, the latter will require a lot of creative work on your part as they only give you a few sentences to work with. Uh, however, you can use everything you find in this section with very minimal effort. 
either to flesh out sort of lackluster parts of your city, you know, right right away, and just give them a sort of real feel that allows you to uh, make your urban adventures feel more finished, more polished, give them a good professional sort of uh, feel that you wouldn't have if you were crunched for time and just looking to quickly GM for a city. Um, be warned, however, that a handful of these bits uh, do things like give really exciting and evocative descriptions of the outsides of taverns or offer the PCs directions to an interesting inn or other service, and that while you could use these bits as is, they do sort of beg your PCs to go into those inf interesting taverns or visit those services, and thus they do virtually demand some extra work on your part to ensure that there are things to do and see while they while they're there. The next section uh, outlines 80 shards of the streets, which are similar to bits in that they are relatively short paragraphs describing a flavorful scene without getting bogged down with mechanics, but differ in that where, in that they were designed for you to read through in advance and choose which one or ones you might want to include and where. Uh, while these are about the same length as bits, they do tend to be somewhat more specific and lend themselves uh, well to being flushed out for entire encounters or to be used as adventure hooks. Uh, this section essentially provides you with a great number of super bits, which are very useful for GMs looking for a place to start when you're trying to create a better city for the PCs to adventure in. Personally, I think it was a great idea for them to include this section, as it both provides a good incentive for those GMs who do in fact have the time to fully invest in detailing their cities and giving them that sort of professional feel, but want either some inspiration or some good ideas to start with, or just, just don't necessarily know how to make make it all sort of clinched together. This is a great place for them to, uh, to launch for that. And I also think it was smart of them to include it for those OSGMs who bought the book when we were crunched for time and then our schedule's cleared up and we don't need a little random bit to insert anymore. This gives us something we can all just sort of paw through and find the uh, the most exciting thing we, we see in there and use as a sort of seed for our adventures in the future. Um, so after this uh, this section, we hit the next part of the book, which is called Walls and Gates, an interesting section which aims to give you something creative to say when your PCs ride up to a city, something that your PCs probably do a lot. Um, basically, this uh, section, they list a number of different kinds of city walls, such as large city wall or wooden palisade, and provide you with some stock pros you can read, read off when your PCs approach the city. Uh, while this is probably the least useful part of the book, it can, be, uh, it can be good and useful to bail you out when your PCs show up to a city prematurely and, uh, and you find you didn't really have anything to say at first. It gives you a good place to, uh, to sort of recover and, uh, and stretch for some time. And it also gives you a good uh, starting place when you're looking to create pros for your own city walls and, uh, and for those at-the-gate kind, of, uh, kind of encounters. Um, finally, the book uh, leaves us with a section uh, called A Bit About the City, which, if you ask me, is by far the most useful section of the book uh, to GMs looking to build a city, uh, particularly for beginners or anyone new to running cities. Uh, this section provides some pretty good advice on creating your cities by asking you the uh, smart questions, like, why does a city exist here, and how is it organized? Uh, following the advice uh, here, there's an excellent way to get started when you're making your cities, and the appendix about law levels provides you with a lot of good, solid information to help you flesh out the little details and really make your cities sparkle, make them something special. 
And then, uh, then at, actually, really quickly, the uh, the book at the very end, there's an index, which is actually one of the most useful indexes I've ever seen in a um, in a PDF product. And this uh, this index it tells you uh, what number bits and shards, uh, as I mentioned earlier, they're numbered, are useful for which subjects. For example, they'll they'll list off which ones are for waterfront scenes or which ones have merchants, stuff like that. So that if you're looking for something specific, you can go right there without having to dig through everything. Just as a uh, handy tip for using it. So what's the conclusion? Frankly, I think this book is excellent. It's well written, fun to read, and useful. While the product is kind of pricey at $7.75 at DriveThruRPG, I would strongly recommend this product to any uh, GM finding himself short on time, and especially for new GMs looking for a uh, foray into the urban adventure for the first time. Alright, a positive review for once. And, on top of that, I just wanted to, to chime in that they actually also make a variety of other uh, similar products, uh, for example, off the top of my head, Bits of the Wilderness into the Wildwood, but they've got some for, um, I know they have like mountains and swamps, and then I think there may be a couple of others as well. To the best of my knowledge, those are all vaguely similar. Uh, Josh, did you have anything specific you wanted to say about any of those? Well, I did actually have the pleasure of reading Bits of the Wilderness into the Wildwood, uh, and it, yes, it is very similar. It offers the same kind of high-quality, uh, flavorful information. Uh, that that in particular one, most of the bits, uh, at least for me when I was reading them, in addition to providing you with something, you know, a neat descriptor for your forest, a lot of them kind of read like, and, and here's the description, and then the monster appears, roll for initiative. It's really uh, very useful if you're looking for um, for ways to seed encounters. Uh, so at least bits of the wilderness reads a little bit more like that, but it, it's still very similar. Obviously, there's there's less uh, civil encounters in the uh, in the woods, and uh, and in general, the the product line seems to be uh, seems to be more or less based on the uh, the same guiding principles. But yeah, very useful. Uh, admittedly, it's it's a little bit more than I would like to pay, but again, I would I would highly recommend it. All right, thank you for that. Uh, now, some of you may remember when we last left John, the Grinning Skull Morgan, and the crew of the Gentry. They had just set out from the pirate cove of Devil's Maw on what they thought was a simple and straightforward job serving as backup protection on a smuggler's vessel, when in fact the captain, one William Farthing, an alcoholic with quickly mounting debt, was secretly leading them on a mission to find and put a stop to the, the mysterious force that was plaguing merchants and other ships in the area. The three bodyguards, John, the mysterious and all but silent warrior with the strange tattoos, and Gregor, the hooded priest, all remained on the deck once the gentry was out of port. John and the stoic barbarian staring silently out into the ocean, their eyes scanning for any signs of trouble, even as their minds brooded on other, more personal matters. Gregor, it seemed, remained on the deck because that was where the card game was, and he laughed most of the afternoon away with a glass of wine and a slowly growing pile of coin. The captain had retreated into his cabin, along with the strange and alluring woman John had encountered when he arrived on the ship, who he'd later learned was named Elvira. Uh, though the day had begun bright and sunny, the weather had shifted not long after the gentry left port, and now the sky was a dull and ominous gray, and a very light rain was falling, almost like a thick mist, as though the rain weren't even falling at all, but rather the moisture in the air was simply condensing on everyone and everything aboard. John was not the first to see the wreck, as he was looking in the wrong direction at the time. It was the large, taciturn warrior who saw it first, striding purposefully over to John and tapping him on the shoulder for his attention, then pointing silently towards the ruined vessel. 
It was just on the edge of sight, barely discernible, where the gray sea met the gray sky, with a wedge of grayish sand in between. The ship itself was a dark gray blob, and might have been missed entirely except for its sails, which still bore the bright red and blue of the Jorbox, one of the merchant families of Stromdop. John nodded to the warrior, his voice grim as his fingers unconsciously moved to his pistol, checking the hammer. Aye. I suppose we'd best be on our guard. Think we should inform the captain, or better not to worry him. He doesn't seem like the type to take stress well. The warrior simply pointed as one of the deckhands, the boy with the straw-colored hair that John had spoken to earlier, hurried to the captain's cabin. They weren't the only ones that had seen the shipwreck, it seemed. Moments later, the captain's door burst open, and the boy, John was pretty sure he'd called some, heard someone calling him Oliver earlier, ran out, shouting excitedly, Captain says, move in closer to the wreck. We're going to check it out. What? John bellowed, surprising himself as much as anyone else. Rather than try to explain the outburst, though, he stormed over to the captain's cabin, the door bursting open again, though this time inward, as John barged into the room. The captain was behind his desk, looking over some papers. Elvira was seated in a chair on the other side, also looking intently at whatever it was. John didn't get a chance to see, as the captain quickly scooped up the papers and tucked them into a drawer under his desk before glaring up at the skeleton. Didn't they teach you to knock before entering the captain's quarters? What's this about going poking around in some sunken wreck of a trading ship? I thought you said we were on a tight schedule. Simple delivery. There was a flat edge to John's voice as he spoke, almost accusatory. And we are, but that doesn't mean we're going to pass up an opportunity like this, the captain responded smoothly, having thought ahead for this kind of conversation. Who knows what was in that trader's cargo holds? Anything we find will be split up among the crew. And, of course, our intrepid bodyguards will get triple shares. The pale green flames that served as John's eyes narrowed, unimpressed. Three measly percent? Is that supposed to impress me? Besides, no doubt whatever sunk her took any treasure she may have had. Captain Bill simply shrugged. Maybe, maybe not. It's a gamble. Besides, there might be some survivors, and we can't turn our backs on them. The captain's voice didn't ring with much conviction, and he knew he wasn't convincing anyone that survivors were the real reason he was after the ship, but he knew he didn't have to, either, and the point would stand regardless. John was not one to admit he was wrong, though, and pushed the point just a little bit further. That's as may be, Captain, but it's also possible that whatever caused this mess is still there. There's more than just pirates on the seas. What if the ship was sunk by a demon who's using it to lure in more victims? The captain waved this away. I'm sure if that was the case, there'd be more than one wreck there. In any case, the matter's closed. You were hired to guard the ship, and the ship is going to investigate that wreck. You're coming along, Mr. Morgan, whether you like it or not. John's voice rose with anger. I was hired to protect the ship in the event she happened to be attacked, not to babysit you while you go dragging about for trouble. The captain's voice, in contrast to the skeletons, went quieter, but was no less menacing. Mr. Morgan, we both know that searching through the wreckage of a sunken trader is a perfectly natural thing for someone in one of our lines of work to do, and if you weren't hired on as protection, you'd probably have suggested it yourself. We're going, you're coming. You might as well make yourself useful and help load the rowboats. Both of the gentry's rowboats were used to go to the wreckage of the ship. All told, those exploring the place included the captain, John, Gregor, the silent warrior, Oliver, and five others. Elvira, who John had learned was the gentry's first mate, stayed behind to watch over the ship and the remaining crew. It was impossible to tell the name of the ship, whose corpse they were about to plumb, because the way it had crashed had buried most of the ship either in the sand or water, 
with only about half the deck accessible from above. The men brought their rowboats in close and then threw grappling hooks up to try and get a hold. It took three or four tries before one found stable purchase, and after the second time the hook pulled free a large chunk of rotting wood, there was some concern it wouldn't work at all. But eventually a solid hold was found, and the men pulled themselves up onto the deck, with the silent warrior going first and John going last, to protect from any opportunistic attackers below the waves. Because of this, John got a hint of what was on the deck before he actually saw it. The stoic mercenary companion was characteristically quiet on the matter, uh, but each other man let out an oath or curse, sometimes many, upon reaching the top and seeing whatever it was for themselves. After the first few half-suppressed cries of, Malara's tears! and By the old gods! The men still in the boat with John became nervous, one of them muttering something about how they could wade and maybe he should go ahead. John pitied the lad, but despite that and his own curiosity, he forced them to go in order. For all he knew, whatever was up on the deck was just a diversion to distract from a threat below. When everyone, when everyone else finally was on deck, John climbed the rope as well. Emerging onto the deck was like stepping into a war zone, or possibly a butcher's shop. The deck was littered with corpses. Even after what must have been at least a week exposed to the elements, it was clear at a glance that whoever these people were, they hadn't died peacefully or from something as simple as drowning. Each of the bodies had been heavily mutilated, ripped into by something that seemed inhuman. Jagged, bloody claw marks covered the face of one victim. Another had had her throat torn out, leaving a gaping, bloody hole where her neck should have been. Most of them, more like them, were scattered across the deck in a haphazard fashion, and John could vaguely see that there were more corpses that had fallen over the side and wound up on the beach below. The others had begun cautiously spreading out, exploring the available section of the deck and attempting to examine the bodies without touching them. The captain, upon seeing John, spoke suddenly, causing many of the men to jump. All right, lads, now that we're all up, we can start taking a poke around, see what we see. It was split into two groups. You, 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 and you. Here he pointed to John, Gregor, the silent warrior, and a crewman John didn't know very well. We'll start up here and work your way down. The rest of you, come with me. We're headed for the cargo hold. John didn't protest, knowing that challenging a captain at sea in front of the rest of the crew wasn't far short of mutiny, but he made a mental note to have some strong words with Captain Bill later. After the captain's party had departed, he motioned Gregor over, and the two of them stooped down to examine one of the bodies. Well, priest, what do you make of the wounds? I'm a priest, not a wizard. I don't make a study of claw marks. But we're clear, then. These are claw marks. Whatever did this... I'd be very surprised if it was human, but I'm not an expert. John nodded, thinking. You know what's odd, though? What is that? The voice came from behind them, deep and resonant, their warrior companion. Well, if it was some kind of animal, say a bear or wolf or something, maybe held below decks for transport and then escaped in the crash, you'd expect there to be some claw marks on the wood as well. Not the gashes like on the victims here, but something, surely. But there's nothing like that, concluded the priest, looking ahead in John's trail of logic. So does that mean, came the voice of the sailor that the captain had left with them, sea demons? And that's all the story we have time for this week, folks. We'll be continuing the saga in later podcasts to find out whether there really are sea demons and if there are any still around to cause problems for the skeletal captain and his crew. But for the time being, we're going to move on to our next segment. 
Specifically, we're going to continue a segment we started last week called Bestiary Breakdown. In this segment, we're taking a closer look at the monsters of the Bestiary 3 one by one and providing some commentary on them that might be useful for GMs who are considering putting such monsters in their game. Last time, we left off with the Adlet, which means that today we'll be starting with the Ahuizaro. <laughs> this relatively adorable CR6 magical beast is not new to the game and was previously featured in at least the 3rd edition Fiend Folio and probably earlier books I'm not aware of. To have come back so many times, it must be beloved by somebody, but personally, I'm not that big of a fan. Uh, while the fluff section is enjoyably grim in the way that it talks about how Ahuizotls uh, specifically enjoy devouring eyeballs and fingernails from humanoid victims, that's something you could apply to just about anything depraved and evil, and would probably prove a lot more interesting on an imp familiar or a normal human than it would on a giant weasel thing. In fact, the idea that they subsist on those tiny organs when they are, in fact, large size is a little silly. The trademark of the Ahuizotl is its tail, which ends in a large but very humanoid claw. Uh, this does give it a single claw attack, which is nice, I guess, but isn't really all that interesting mechanically. In fact, the closest thing it has to an interesting mechanical ability is its voice mimicry special quality, which allows it to use bluff to mimic a humanoid voice, including specific humanoids. As far as its power level goes, it's about on par for its CR, possibly just a smidge weak, but there's really not that much to say here. If you need a CR6 beastie, by which I mean a decidedly inhuman monster, such as a magical beast, and you want it to be fairly intelligent, enough to talk to your PCs anyway, the Ahuizotl is certainly an option. If you're planning on whipping out the bestiary to show your players a picture, it might be worth it. The art here isn't half bad, but I wouldn't go out of my way to use this one personally. Next up is the Aklut, uh, which is quite possibly the stupidest monster in the entire book, and yet still has a certain amount of potential for fun. This CR-13 magical beast is, put simply, a shape-changing killer whale slash wolf. They're huge size, and most likely, if your PCs ever encounter one, it will be in its wolf-whale hybrid form. Which looks like nothing so much as <laughs> with Ferrand. I'm sorry. Um, I'm sorry. It's just, it's... It's a really stupid idea. Uh, it, it looks like nothing so much as an orca with fur on top, four legs, and a tail coming out the back, plus glowing red eyes. Honestly, even though the monster sounds ridiculous... <laughs> sorry. Even though the monster sounds ridiculous, I have heard of some fun things you can do with one. Imagine the following setting. The PCs have traveled into the frozen north and take refuge at a simple fisherman's hut. The fisherman is a bit slow, or perhaps lost his tongue to frostbite, or the war. But whatever the case, he has a bit of a speech impediment. And so he tells the PCs that the path they are traveling will take them through the territory of the whale wolf. Naturally, the PCs stock up on silver bullets and are surprised to discover a very different kind of lupine shape changer. <laughs> okay, I, I would almost certainly never inflict something that silly and to a lesser degree of importance politically incorrect upon my group, but it's kind of a fun thing to think about. These monsters are beyond niche and solidly into the realm of unusable. Worse still, their mechanics are kind of phoned in. They have identical stats regardless of whether they're in whale form or hybrid form, and they can actually switch in an instant and automatically as they move from the water to the land or vice versa. As a result, the fact that it has two forms is largely meaningless because it's not supported by the mechanics at all. If you do, for whatever reason, feel a need to use an Aklut in your campaign, perhaps you uh, want to use one of each of the Bestiary 3 monsters, or you have some other reason to use one, 
you'll find that it's probably about right for its CR. Don't depend on its DR15 over magic to save it from anything, though. At CR13, if your party doesn't overcome over magic, you probably shouldn't be throwing creatures of their CR at them. This brings us to the Alep, uh, but we're going to skip that in particular monster because, as I pointed out when I first reviewed the Beastiary 3, it's almost identical to the one from the 3.5 monster manual. I do want to congratulate whoever changed the Wisdom Drain to Wisdom Damage, however, as CR3 creatures should never have been doing Ability Drain anyway. So, our final monster today will be the Alraun. A-L-R-A-U-N-E. This CR13 plant is probably a close runner-up for the stupidest monster in the book, which is unfortunate because this concentration of bad monsters at the beginning of the book really makes it easy to get discouraged and want to give up on it. Whatever the case, the Alraun is a large, colorful plant with a single flower. When it wants to eat, the flower opens and reveals a green, beautiful humanoid shape within. Uh, this is just a lure by the plant, of course, and can appear either male or female as appropriate for the victim. This form, along with an alluring scent and some spell-like abilities, lulls victims into a false sense of security, and according to the fluff, the plant uses charm person and suggestion to make its victims dig themselves a grave and bury themselves in it, then, once they're helpless, drains them of intelligence and constitution on an hourly basis for nourishment using their roots. Other than this possibly being a new height of GM Dickery, oh, you thought it was bad when the plant just turned your character into a character's corpse into a zombie puppet and you had to watch as it got cut down well now he can dig his own grave literally this doesn't make for a very dynamic encounter uh one maybe two saving throws and if you fail your plant food and won't be able to do anything about it until it's far too late you'll also probably suffocate long before the plant begins feeding on you but that's neither here nor there mechanically once again it's pretty straightforward its only real special ability is a calming fragrance which is basically just a souped-up calm emotions aura. It has some other spell-like abilities, and that's nice, I guess, but nothing to write home about. Uh, probably the most interesting thing about it is that it moves at a speed of 40, according to the fluff, by walking on its vines as though they were spider legs. Its numbers are all about right, though the DC for its calming aura is about three higher than it probably should be at DC 24, DC 21 being the high category for its CR. Uh, like the other creatures we've been over so far, there's not really that many excellent reasons to use the Alraun. Uh, that said, higher CRs aren't exactly crawling with plants, and the Alraun is at least as cool as the Roper, probably more so. Just be careful about how you use this monster, because as is, it is mostly just a string of will saves until one or more characters kill themselves to serve their new plant masters. Likely the best way to use an Alraun is to let it go wild on some NPCs the players like, and then allow them to find the drained and desiccated husks of their friend in shallow graves. Then allow research and investigation to finally lead to a confrontation with the beast, which they should know by now if they did their homework, has some kind of charm ability, and they can prepare accordingly. Now it's time for game mastery. Let's look at 10 top tips for mastering your game. Since we'll be covering mounts a lot next week, I want to give you something of a sneak preview by breaking down 10 cool situations where mounts are going to play a big role. Number one, have a horse race. Whether an organized race around the track or a desperate pursuit as the villain flees on horseback with the princess tucked under his arm, few mounted encounters get the adrenaline pumping like a good old-fashioned horse race. It's also important to keep in mind that if you don't have good rules for racing horses, uh, this encounter will lose most of its majesty. Uh, and since, uh, unfortunately, the game doesn't do a very good job of giving you good horse rules in the core rulebook, be sure to check out Steeds and Stallions and... For our less discerning listeners, uh, perhaps some kind of similar inferior product, uh, for more exciting racing rules. Uh, number two, have a joust. 
Not just a great excuse to hold a tournament in your game, a joust is one of the most iconic scenes in fantasy literature and even more modern fantasy media. I can't remember the last time I saw a bunch of knights together who didn't do a joust. Uh, you may want to consider doing other sorts of related challenges in order to test the mount's skills and abilities and give people a, a more broader or more broad rather experience uh, that, that puts them through their paces more than a simple charge and attack roll. Uh, visiting your local renaissance fair or watching some videos on YouTube should give you all the inspiration you'll need. Number three, go on parade. This encounter will be more about personal glory for your PCs and should carry a significant social consequences so that your PCs take it seriously. Um, this will also give you a great chance to put everybody on parade and that can be for a great fun change of pace from cutting up goblins every you know other weekend. Um, so anyway, as everyone knows, the state of a hero's parade horse and parade armor have a huge bearing on how he's perceived. And thus, the majority of this challenge will revolve around how well your PCs groom their mounts in their off time and how well they groom their person. Uh, number four, conduct a fox hunt. Since it's D&D, you could hunt something more deadly and dangerous, such as a bay here, if you want it. But foxes are pretty good, too. Uh, the, the general idea is that you hold a prolonged mounted chase, where the mobility and speed offered by a mount is crucial for its success. This will let you uh, give you a good chance to highlight you know, all the sort of things you get to do with mounts that you couldn't just do on foot, unless you were a monk. Don't let monks do this. Uh, you should include a number of difficult jumps and long sprints uh, in order to highlight those, uh, those sorts of skills mounts have and show off the kind of cool imagery of running through the backwoods, desperately chasing after a small, helpless woodland creature. Um, number five, take to the skies using exciting flying mounts to conduct a fantastic aerial race. Pit pegasi against giant owls, giant eagles, or, and hippogriffs. Can anyone defeat the mysterious Black Rider and his terrifying Couchamar? Uh, put up a great prize as an incentive for your PCs to try their hardest and push their mounts to the limit. And think up some really neat aerial obstacles. Perhaps they'll have to go through a thunderstorm. Maybe they'll have to go around an active volcano. The sky is the limit. Number six. Conduct an aerial cavalry battle, pitting the PCs and their flying mounts against, e against other flying mounts, burying enemy soldiers and black knights. Uh, have add ranged combat to make it harder uh even pit a group of uh, mounted aerial soldiers against a dragon or similar aerial creature who's at more at home in the skies when you're doing this be prepared for the complexity of three-dimensional combat also for the further complexities of mounted combat this this will probably be pretty bogged down unless you're you're really on the ball about that so so make sure that you know what you're doing before you head into this situation number seven PCs on foot must catch up to a speeding carriage escorted by a troop of knights. Uh, so in order to do this, they're first going to have to find a way to overtake the rear of the, uh, of the escort and procure mounts for themselves, preferably by jumping off a bridge and knocking out the knights on their horses. Uh, then they have to reach the carriage before it escapes into the woods. This is uh, another sort of desperate chase scene. Uh, be sure that you try to work in some kind of situation where the PCs have to jump from one horse to another, because that'll make it so much cooler and more memorable that, that your, your PCs will just love you. Your, your players will be like, wow, that was amazing. Number eight, war is broken out, and the PCs have been assigned to the Scout Cavalry Division, whether they like it or not. Uh, while on patrol, they realize that the enemy is moving and that their camp is unprepared for the oncoming assault. Now they've got to race against the clock to retreat back and their only hope is to push the horses to their limit to get out ahead of the enemy forces and get back in time to uh, to rally everybody in time for the ambush 
as a reward, maybe they can get to be generals or something cooler than scout cavalry. Uh, number nine, the PCs have been hired to steal a rare and exotic mount and transport it to their client. Unfortunately, the creature has proved somewhat difficult to get along with, and the PCs must struggle with young cooperative creature every step of the way. This encounter should require more than just a handful of handle animal rolls to complete, and ought to focus on the PCs having to go out of their way to befriend the creature. Uh, ideally, this should also make uh, your PCs grow to be grudgingly attached to the grumpy monster, and then force them to face the tough decision as to whether to give him up to their client for the gold, to uh, uh, give up on the promise and run off with their cool new exotic mount, or to let the creature go in a, uh, in a very uncharacteristic bout of humanitarianism on the uh, part of PCs. Uh, last but not least, number 10. Buy a horse, or similar creature. The fun here comes from observing mounts with some personality. And you need to offer a wide variety of creatures, uh, with each with their own name and attitude. You need to uh, to let them sort of get used to a wide uh, a wide assortment of different beasts and see some real differences between them, even if they are all horses. Uh, the next thing that they get to do is is figure out which ones are good and which ones are bad, which could be uh, which could be difficult. Uh, and finally, they are going to have to deal with the with all stable masters naturally are skeevy and sketchy, and now they're going to have to try not to get taken. Uh, for some uh, for some more tips and tricks, not to uh, not to beat a dead horse, so to speak, uh, you should check out um, Steeds and Stallions for some more great uh, tips on having horse traits and quality. Uh, some good starting places there. Thanks for that, Josh. Um, <clears throat> just to clarify, for those of you who uh, who may not appreciate rampant mercantilism. Um, there are plenty of other ways with which you can go about getting cool horse rules and uh, and rules for, for mount quality, I'm sure. Uh, I personally didn't find very many books about horses. Uh, we'll be reviewing one next week. It doesn't really have to do with either of those topics, but I'm sure that you can find other things besides ours, which happens to be available for $249 at DriveThruRPG. Um, moving on. All right. Now, as some of you who are longtime readers on the Necromancers of the Northwest website may be aware, I occasionally like to talk about Magic the Gathering. Um, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Magic the Gathering, it's a card game. That's probably all you need to know for the purposes of this. Whatever the case, um, a long time ago, almost back when we were first starting out, um, I wrote a couple of articles called Rising Stars, where I talked about uh, some of the design principles from the latest released magic set, Rise of the Eldrazi, and talked sort of about how you could apply those design principles and the lessons from that set uh, to other things, specifically D&D, uh, &D, Pathfinder, that sort of stuff. Um, in the time since then, I've occasionally talked about magic stuff as well. Rise, Rising Stars happened to be one of the more popular articles at the time. It may have had something to do with uh, 3.5 and 4th edition stat blocks for Eldrazi monsters. Whatever the case, I'm going to go ahead and spend a little bit of time now. Josh and I are going to talk about some of the, the card stuff from Dark Ascension, the current latest magic set. Though, for all I know, by the time you hear this, it's entirely possible that the latest magic set may be Avacyn Restored. Whatever the case, I want to talk a little bit about some of the cards and mechanics from that set and some 
general principles you could take from those into game design in general. So, um, to start off with a couple of cards that I personally really like, I want to start off with probably my favorite card in the set, Undying Evil. Uh, this is, in fact, by far my favorite card in the set. It's not powerful in a constructed sort of way. Um, it's not something that you're going to be seeing probably a lot at your uh, at the Grand Prix or the, the Pro Tours or anything like that. But it will really make waves at your kitchen table, I'm pretty sure, especially if you use it to save a particularly hard-to-kill creature like an indestructible one. Uh, otherwise, it's more just like a regeneration with a plus one, plus one counter. For those of you who aren't familiar with Undying Evil, it's a uh, it's one black mana for an instant, and target creature gains Undying until end of turn. Uh, undying, of course, meaning that when it dies, if it had no plus one, plus one counters on it, return it to the battlefield under its owner's control with a plus one, plus one counter on it. So basically, it comes back, but stronger, uh, which is sort of a horror trope, which Dark Ascension... Uh, is tying into with that that mechanic. My favorite thing about Undying Evil, specifically the card, is that Undying, the mechanic, is a really great and flavorful mechanic, but it's one that almost makes you almost makes you feel like it should be around more. If Vorapede, for example, uh, one of the big splashy uh, monsters with Undying, if Vorapede can come back, why can't insert favorite scary monster here. Why can't my favorite demon come back? Why can't my favorite skeleton come back? It's a general monster thing, and so, you know, you, you definitely find yourself going, well, that's great, but, you know, how come they only stuck it on these monsters? I want it on my pet favorite monster for this deck or whatever. Well, the nice thing about this, and the thing that I think really makes this such a fantastic standout card is now, in fact, you you can do that because, of course, with magic, with its constantly moving uh, from set to set and, and all of that, uh, you you can't really have, you can't go apply mechanics. The, the Undying mechanic is going to be around uh, probably just for Dark Ascension. It might be in, in Avacyn Restored, depending on how they do it, but I would be very surprised based on the way they're, they're doing it. So this is probably the only set that we're guaranteed to see Undying. If it's very, very popular, it may come back in a few years. But other than that, this is probably all that we're going to get. And you get that with, like, all of the mechanics for Magic. They um, they sort of, they're only there for a little while and they go away. And so with the really nice ones like this, it's nice to have these sorts of things where you can apply that mechanic to whatever you want uh, so that you don't wind up, for example, saying, well... It's really great that uh, that we did all that poison stuff in the last block. Why doesn't this guy have poison? Why doesn't that guy have poison? Well, you know, there were ways to do that too. But the point is, that's what's really great about this. It's got cool flavor as well. Uh, it's it's a card that I just absolutely adore. Um, on a very different note, another card that I really like is the Forge Devil. Uh, this cute little guy, 1-1 uh, uh, Red Devil for 1 Red. Um, presents an interesting challenge. When he comes into play, uh, he deals one damage to target creature and one damage to you. Now that sounds really great, and in fact it is, if the other guy's first turn was to play uh, uh, Birds of Paradise or Llanowar Elves or something else that's got, uh, that's got one toughness, you can play your creature, kill your opponent's guy, you're looking pretty sweet. On the other hand, if there's no other creatures around, for example, if you went first and he's your first turn play, 
he will kill himself and damage you. Um, cards like this that make you think and aren't just all upside keep the game fun and challenging for experienced players, which is great. Um, in general, I think that you see more of this sort of... Magic has kind of been moving a little bit away from this kind of trade-off, work around a difficulty challenge thing. There are definitely cards like that, uh, and I don't, I don't mean to say that you know Magic is not making cards that are that are not all upside anymore. But there's definitely been a push towards cards that are are just all upside. Uh, and then obviously there's been some other things like a couple of years ago they got rid of Mana Burn, uh, which had actually been on a lot of cards, had been uh, a factor like that. There would be cards where, you know, for example, they would add a bunch of mana uh, during your upkeep, and that's great if you have a way to use it, but if not, now you're taking a ton of damage. Um, things like that. Um, some cards got a whole lot more powerful and a whole lot more appealing when they got rid of mana burn. Some some cards became a lot less powerful and less interesting, and generally speaking, a lot of cards got less interesting when they got rid of mana burn. Um, I'm not saying they shouldn't have done that. Most of those cards were older um, and, you know, whatever. I'm just saying that <clears throat> that sort of interesting, difficult dynamic and, and having to make choices and think hard and, and not just being able to run things on all upside is something that you definitely want. I think you definitely want to have when you're designing a game because... It keeps players engaged, it makes them continue to think, it rewards them for being clever, uh, that sort of stuff. And that's what's going to keep them coming back to the game and, and have them have a good experience with it. Um, another thing that I wanted to talk about was the increasing cycle. Uh, increasing vengeance, increasing confusion, increasing ambition. There were increasing savagery, and I, I don't remember the other one. Uh, devotion, I think, the white one. Uh, whatever the case, what these are is they're... Their cards with flashback. It's a mechanic that lets them be played from the graveyard. Um, so after you after you've played them, they go in the graveyard, and then you can cast them one more time, uh, and then they go away forever. Uh, flashback's an old mechanic. This is now the um, this is now the third time I think that flashbacks come back. It was in Odyssey block. It was in Time Spiral block. Uh, I believe this is the third time we've seen flashback. Um, the last time it came back. To the best of my knowledge, uh, they didn't actually do anything strictly new with it uh, in Time Spiral block. And for this block, the only thing that they're doing that's new with it, because they have confirmed it's not coming back for Avacyn Restored, uh, the only thing they're doing that's new with it is this cycle, which is um, basically when, uh, when you flash it back, instead of having its normal effect, it has double its normal effect. So the one that... Uh, the one that causes you to, to put a bunch of cards from your graveyard onto your library and you instead put twice as many or uh, has you copy a spell, you copy the spell twice or whatever. Um, that's cool. Don't get me wrong. It's, it's definitely exciting to see Flashback doing something a little bit different. Uh, but for the third incarnation, I was hoping for something a little more, little more meaty, uh, something a little newer, a little different. Uh, for example... Uh, maybe when you flash it back, it has its normal effect plus some secondary additional effect that's completely different, just off the top of my head. Or, or maybe it gets shuffled into your library or stays in the graveyard indefinitely rather than being exiled. Obviously, the, uh, the second one is a much, much bigger deal than the first one. But if you costed it appropriately, you know, maybe. Um, 
obviously the the latter one might not be flashback anymore obviously it's similarly um you know if it had a completely separate effect when it was cast from your graveyard that again would probably cease to be something that's actually flashback but again would be an interesting twist on the mechanic that we haven't really seen um obviously people were excited when they heard flashback was coming back and generally speaking you know it's good to revisit mechanics that are that are well loved especially in a game like magic where mechanics don't stay around forever they they eventually leave um D and D has less of an issue with that, except for the every five or six years when you uh, when you get a new iteration, new edition. Uh, like they've got fifth edition coming out soon. Uh, more on that some other podcast. Whatever the case, um, you know. But it's it's nice. Players like seeing more of the things that they liked. At the same time, you want to try to build and improve upon that and, and give them something new as well. If you're just getting all of the same thing over and over again, it ceases to be exciting and starts to become boring, and that's not something that's fun for a game. Moving on, I want to talk about a card called Curse of Misfortunes. Um, this card uh, uses the makes use of the curse mechanic, which we saw... Uh, in Innistrad and is, has returned in Dark Ascension. Um, basically, it's an enchantment. Uh, uh, it's a curse you put on a... Curses are enchantments you put on a specific player, and then they, they generally do bad things to that player. Um, in this in particular case, uh, at the beginning of your upkeep, you can search your library for a curse card that doesn't have the same name as a curse attached to the player that Curse of Misfortune is put on. Uh, then you put it onto the battlefield attached to that player, and then shuffle your library. Um... So basically the idea here is this is clearly a card uh, for a cursed deck. I guess in theory it, it might be there just to ensure that you get that one curse out that you really need. But really it's, it's there so that, you, uh, so that you can sort of pull out a bunch of curses. Unfortunately, it requires that all of the curses be different, uh, meaning you can't pile up the same kind of curse, which means ultimately that in order for it to work you need a great variety of curses that do something cool. Similarly, um, in Innistrad, there was a, a kind of a similar card that tried to use the curse mechanic called the Bitter Heart Witch. When she died, she you got to search your library for any curse and then, then attach it to target player. Um, these are cool. I like the idea. It's fun that you can... It's, it's definitely good that they're providing this kind of support for the curses, and that's all great. The problem is that there's not that many curses, uh, and a lot of them aren't that great anyway, and you wouldn't really feel that much of a need to put them on somebody. For example, I have never really had a strong need to put Curse of Oblivion, which slowly takes cards out of your opponent's graveyard, um, in anybody's... I've never really wanted to use that at any point. And because there's a limited number of curses, and as we've kind of talked about, there's probably never going to be any more ever, um, these cards don't really support the weight. The Curse of Misfortunes costs 5 mana, which, for those of you who aren't aware, is kind of expensive, especially since it doesn't do anything until the next turn, at which point the curse may very well not do anything right away. It's it's not a good card, and unfortunately, the, the really unfortunate thing about that, because it's, it's fine to have cards that aren't good, the unfortunate thing here is it it's basically a lie, a trap on the part of the game designer. I mean, I'm sure it wasn't deliberately a trap, but it kind of comes out that way because what it is is the card has this promise, hey, look at me, 
you can use me to build this really cool curse deck that's going to have all these curses, and you're going to get to pull out a bunch of curses for free, and they're going to be really cursed. It's going to be awesome. And then you look at it, and you realize that um, there's only a handful of curses. I, I think they barely reach double digits. Um, and they're spread across four different colors, um, though realistically it's it's mostly just three. I'm not actually sure that they – yeah, no, they are spread. Or did they did they do a green one? Do you know? I'm not sure. Hold on, just one second. It, it's not. It's yeah. But whatever the case, it's spread over at least um, at least three colors. They're mainly in blue, black, and red. Um, and then there's a white one, and there may be there may be a green one. We don't know. We don't remember. Um, but whatever the case, um, you're gonna have to be running at least those three colors. You can't use it to put out any curses you may have already used so the more copies of a given curse you have in your deck the less useful this in particular one is it's it's a mess um and the whole thing basically just encourages you to build a deck that's never going to be any good which you know it is is frustrating because they they clearly have the ability to look at the the set and realize that you're never gonna with what they have you're never going to be able to make uh, an effective curse deck and so it's a little irresponsible I think to to put something like that out there that says hey look at all these cool things you can do with curses except you can't of course the major thing about uh, this in particular set this whole whole block really is it's really big on the, the flavor uh, mainly horror flavor but there's a a variety of flavors ultimately in there. I want to talk about a couple of the cards that, that do a really good job of expressing their flavor uh, and, you know, sort of how they're they're doing that. So the first one that comes to mind is Midnight Guard, uh, which is a creature who um, he untaps anytime a creature enters the battlefield. This is subtle. You may not immediately be aware of exactly, you know, what that has to do with being a Midnight Guard. Um, but it's it's mostly carried by the, the flavor text, the idea that the, the guard is constantly on the lookout for something moving around out there, being on the being on the alert matches that mechanic of untapping whenever a creature enters the battlefield. When he sees movement, something's going on, he's, boom, ready to go. Um, similarly, I'm a big fan of uh, Scorch the Fields is another great flavorful card. Uh, it's a real shame that this in particular one wasn't around for the dual deck with the knights and the dragons, uh, but what it is is it it's... It's destroy target land, and then it deals one damage to each human creature. Uh, it shows this great picture of this this dragon burning this this whole field down, and um, and it it's really great at at catching that that flavor of you know well with all of the uh, with with all of the land being burned you know the 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 humans they they rely on those crops or whatever and and so they're they're suffering from that. I thought it was really cool, um, and then. Finally, there's uh, Lost in the Woods. Uh, has a really great flavor. Uh, what it what it does is uh, it's this enchantment. Whenever a creature attacks you, you can reveal the top card of your library. If it's a forest, they get removed from combat. Um, it's it's really um, mechanically it's kind of mediocre in most decks. It's probably not going to do that much. But there are some fun things that you can do with it um, in limited. Uh, where where you could, for example, say, uh, make a deck with, I don't know, like, like 44 forests and one of those. Uh, and, and you can, in fact, do that at the Pro Tour level, as we found out a couple of weeks ago here and probably long, long ago, uh, for those of you who are listening, several weeks in the future. Um, 
So those are those are some cool things there. I also wanted to talk um, really quick uh, about uh, Elbrus, the Binding Blade. Uh, this is a um, this is a card that you can really tell who and what it was designed for. It's um, it's an equipment uh, that you can put on a creature. It's uh, you can put on a creature when the creature damages uh, deals damage to an opponent. You you flip the card over. It's no longer a uh, it's no longer a dagger. It is in fact uh, a demon, which has been imprisoned in the dagger and is is freed now that it's now that it's uh, tasted blood, I suppose. And you can tell just by looking at the abilities of the demon. I think it's like whenever uh, whenever a creature or whenever an opponent loses the game, put thirteen plus one plus one counters on him. Uh, so obviously uh, he's going to be really cool in multiplayer games he's obviously a very casual card it's expensive and it's 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 not something you're going to see at any pro tours probably um i guess maybe in uh maybe in limited but whatever the case um it, it's clearly a, a fun it's called a timmy rare it's for people who really enjoy the the, the experience and the that sort of you know sort of fun thing there i just wanted to mention uh, I've I've heard some people, you know, so, some people talking about it on the internet, and it's a lot of people upset and complaining that the rules for the format that this has clearly been designed for EDH or uh, Commander, as it is called now, um, the uh, the rules the rules for that prevent it from being your commander. Your commander is a legendary creature that uh, affects some rules for your deck, and you can you can sort of cast it. Um, if you don't know, go go look it up. But whatever the case, um, it was clearly designed the card for EDH. There's there's not a doubt in my mind, especially considering how many of the uh, the various designers on their staff are just really obsessed with commander, uh, and and just love to make cards specifically for it. And so, you know, certainly in in the case of EDH and this in particular rule. Uh, there's no question that it's there for flavor, that it has to be a legendary creature. Um, there's certainly nothing special about the legendary aspect uh, except to make it a commander. And as far as I can tell, there's no real reason why your legend should need to be a creature. Obviously, it stood because that is just sort of a, a fine place for drawing the line in the sand for what a commander can and can't be. And that certainly makes things simple. And there's definitely a lot to be said for the power of flavor, um, as far as as far as that goes. And you want to make sure that you have flavorful mechanics and flavorful rules to reinforce that and, and help the game feel flavorful. But just as a quick sidebar, would it really be the end of the world if the rules for EDH were altered so that you could have a legendary artifact or a legendary land, uh, for example, as your quote-unquote general obviously you might need to call it something besides a general or a commander in that case but uh, I mean honestly if you look at it I can see how some legendary lands might present problems though if they take up the land drop for the turn they probably wouldn't if you don't get to just have an extra land coming out um, and it's not like they haven't had they haven't banned it's not like they haven't banned specific legendary creatures so if there was one or two lands that absolutely could not be generals well, they would probably get banned too. Similarly, uh, I don't think there's going to be that many legendary enchantments or artifacts that are going to cause that many problems either. Um, obviously, in some of those cases, you would have issues with color identity. 
uh, which is something that the general does. It, it defines what colors can be in the deck. Uh, but you could either, you know, in some cases you might need to either just let them choose a couple or, you know, maybe not. Maybe people who want to play with those in particular things just have an uphill battle and they have to stay completely colorless, whatever. The point is, um, you know, I guess to, uh, to sort of extrapolate out into to general stuff, be careful with your, with your flavor because when you're making rules on it, because it's important that you strike a balance between having a fun and accurate flavor that's going to do things and then, you know, making sure that the rules of the game are fun and support what people want to do. And always sort of keep in mind, is this, is sticking to this for flavor reasons really going to be worth it in the long term? And so those are some of my thoughts on Dark Ascension. Uh, I look forward to your angry, angry emails. And that's all for this week. Uh, tune in next week when we'll be doing our Mount Week podcast. And be sure to check our website, www.necromancers-online.com, all next week for all sorts of fun Mount-related articles. In the meantime, have a fun game.